Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We will be in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 this morning. I uh, had the privilege last week, of course I wasn't here last week, that wasn't a privilege missing here, it's not a privilege to miss here, but I uh, had the privilege last week to do something that I get to do every year, and uh, that's to preach a homecoming uh, service at uh, my grandfather's home church uh, near Hampton, Faustana Methodist Church, and uh, it's always a, a great privilege to be there. The, the people are, are pleasant uh, for the most part, I mean it's mostly family, you know, but uh, but uh, people are great, and the, the food is wonderful. And, uh, you know, they put up with some mediocre preaching, and uh, singing's good. And uh, crowds dwindled a lot over the years, but that's what happens with these things, unfortunately. But I'll be honest with you, it, it's, get, it's got a little bit easier than the first time I ever preached homecoming. I may have told you this before. The first time I ever preached homecoming at Faustana, it was, I had surrendered to the ministry in uh, July or so, and so it was the next July that they asked me to do this. Now, this was something that my grandfather did as long as I had ever known, up until he died when I was in college. He'd always preached homecoming. And then they had some folks, some um, non-family member type, they just trying to find a preacher, and then they got desperate when I surrendered to the ministry and asked me to do it. And that first summer I went in to preach homecoming, I thought, I think Mary and I were dating. I think she went with me. I said, this is going to be hard. These people, it was a bigger crowd back then than it is today. These people have known me my whole life. These people have watched me grow up. They've seen me do things, heard me say things that are not smart. I mean, they re- these people really know me. Hampton's not my hometown, but this is all my, 95% of the crowd is family. And when you know that summer, that third Sunday in July, the hottest week of the year, the air conditioner was out in that little church. It was hotter. I mean, it was harder to probably to preach because of the air conditioner than in front of the family. But anyway, it was, it was hot. You know, it's a little white frame church, no insulation, no, you know, insulated windows. It's just single pane windows. It was really hot in there. But I always enjoy preaching homecoming. And I thank you for the opportunity for me to be a way to do that every year. And, uh, you know, one thing I always think about when I go do that, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning, is one of the times Jesus went home to preach. Jesus got a different reception than I did with the crowd. That You know, at least the people that I go and visit with, they, they talk nicely to me afterwards. Jesus didn't find that same reception. But, you know, a lot of my family there at Hampton, not my hometown. Nazareth, where we see Jesus went, that's his hometown. That's where Jesus had spent probably you know, close to 30 years, and these people watching him grow up. You know, He was a carpenter in town. No doubt he'd done business, done work for a lot of folks around. Don't know what kind of carpenter he was or what exactly his carpentry trade was. But in a town of about 500 or so people, no doubt he probably knew everybody and Everybody knew who he was, but he'd been away for a little while doing his ministry as his ministry had begun a year or so before this encounter that we'll find in Mark chapter 6, maybe a little bit further back than that his ministry had started. But leading right up to it, you'll see as you survey through the first few chapters of Mark, he's been really, really busy. You see there in Mark chapter 6, it begins with the word, then. 
And so we're not looking at this was a little ways down the road. We're talking about just before Jesus goes home to Nazareth. Look what had happened in chapter 5. He'd raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. The woman who had been bleeding for over a decade, she touched the hem of his garment and she instantly was healed. He'd been healing the sick. He'd been raising the dead. He'd been calming the stormy sea. All kinds of things have been going on. And then Jesus goes home to Nazareth. Word had kind of gotten around about what's been happening. Everybody wants to see what's going on with the hometown kid because you see, this wasn't the first encounter that Jesus had had with his home folks there in Nazareth. But we'll pick up the story. We'll talk about some of the other stuff in just a minute. We'll pick up the story. He, he's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, then he goes home. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark records this. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask that you'd add your blessing to the reading of your word and pray that you'd speak to our hearts now. Give us all the, the message that you want us to take from this this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's obvious from reading there in the text, uh, we read a few things, we'll look at it in a little more detail, but it says there at the end of verse 3 that the crowd was offended at Jesus. He didn't get a very warm reception. They probably didn't invite him to stick around for dinner on the grounds after this little homecoming celebration was over. But hey, at least they didn't try to kill him this time. I mean, you, you laugh, but that's what happened last time. About a, We read that in, uh, in Luke chapter 4. This is the second time, in, in Mark chapter 6, what we just read, this is the second time Jesus has come back to Nazareth to speak in the synagogue. And, and look over in, in just a few pages, just a few little ways over, in, in Luke chapter 4, we won't read that whole part this morning, but in the last few verses, Jesus has had a, a conversation. He's just been point blank with the folks there in Nazareth. And, and then in verse 28 of Luke chapter 4, it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they'd heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Jesus had to sneak through the middle of them. To, I mean, he preaches one sermon and they try to kill him, okay? I'm going to try to have you out of here 
quick enough this morning that you won't be trying to kill me, okay? Thankfully, there's not any big cliffs that I know of around here. Maybe you know of some, but despite the way they treated Jesus the first time, read, with that in mind, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 again. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. Despite the fact that the first time he went home and the first time he presented the truth of the gospel, that he was their long-awaited Messiah, despite the fact that they tried to kill him for preaching the truth, Jesus went back. Why? Because they didn't believe the first time. Now, they didn't believe the second time either, but that didn't stop Jesus from going back. You see here, there's a sermon in chapter 6, verse 1. We could spend all, we're not going to, but we could spend all morning on this one verse. Because what it tells us is that despite the way they treated Jesus, despite the way they responded to Jesus, he still had mercy and he still had grace, and he still went back. To tell them it's never too late. I don't know what he preached to them when he went back. Mark doesn't tell us that. But it shows us that, you know what, you may have rejected Jesus the first time. But as long as you're still breathing, there's still time to accept the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. But we already know because we did read this text here in Mark chapter 6, these these six verses that give us the entirety of this encounter, we know that they, again, rejected what he had to offer. And so, that's sad. This is not necessarily a sad sermon. It would be if you hear the truth and continue to reject Jesus. But I want to look at three characteristics of their unbelief that we see here in these verses. See, later here in just a little bit, we're going to celebrate belief in this, this, bapt, this uh, baptistry back here. That's why there's water in the baptistry. Baxter, he believed. He believes he's going to be baptized. It's awesome. Why didn't these people believe? Well, let's look at the first thing I want to see in, in chapter 6, verse 2. Read that again. It says, And when the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? You see, when when you decide that you're going to have this attitude of unbelief, you completely ignore the obvious. That's what these folks did. Their unbelief caused them to ignore the obvious. You see, it was commonplace in Jesus' day that in the synagogue, and, you know, I've seen this happen in some Baptist churches. I remember growing up, going around with my grandfather. Is, you know, we may have been somewhere, and they'd say, Oh, Brother Dunn, you want to preach today? You're here. I watched my grandfather do that. Being at the church he pastored, and, I mean, I remember people like Rocky Goodwin coming in, you know. I mean, he was an old man back then when I would remember seeing him. And uh, you can tell him I said that, I don't care. And, uh, but other people would come in, and I remember my grandpa saying, hey, you're here this morning, you want to preach? I couldn't fathom doing that to somebody, you know? And uh, I would 
crawl under a pew maybe if somebody asked me to do that. You know, we'd, you do what you get, you know. It's kind of, we tell the kids, well, I'll do it, but you get what you get and don't pitch a fit, right? But, uh, but anyway, but a visiting rabbi or a teacher would be there in the synagogue, and that's what they'd do. They'd say, hey, you're here. Do you want to read the Scripture and teach? And that's what had happened the first time. You'd think they'd have learned their lesson since they didn't like what Jesus had said the first time, but now they're hearing all these things he's done. They're hearing about how he just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and how the woman was healed by just touching the hem of his garment. They're hearing about all these wonderful things that Jesus has been doing and all these miracles that have been happening. But probably more than anything, they just wanted to see what all the hype was about. Probably more than anything, they just wanted to be entertained. They were just looking for a show. They're ignoring the obvious. The fact that the Savior of the world, the Bible tells us Jesus was present and active in creation. So the one who created them is standing before them in the flesh. And all they want to see is a show. Mark says here in verse 2, it says, as Jesus was teaching, it says there, and many hearing him were astonished. They should have been. They should have been astonished. You know, John says over in John chapter 1, he says, he's talking about Jesus, he calls him the Word, and he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here they're used to the rabbi standing in front of them, picking up the scroll of the Old Testament and reading it, and now they have the Word of God in the flesh speaking to them. They should have been astonished. But see, they weren't astonished because they knew they were hearing from God. They were astonished because of what they thought they knew about Jesus. You see, sometimes it's what we think we know about Jesus that really hinders our belief, even for a saved person. But this, the word that's rendered uh, here in the English, that's rendered astonished, that Greek word means to be amazed or to be overwhelmed. But it can also mean to strike or to blast. So in other words, to put it quite literally, to put it in a way that we might understand it today, Jesus just completely blew their mind when, they were, when he was teaching. Because, see, what would happen is, is the rabbi, whether the visiting rabbi or, the, or, or whoever was there on a regular basis, would read the scroll, put it down, and then teach. And Mark tells us that Jesus literally blew their mind as he's speaking. But here's why he blew their mind. Because they weren't looking at him as the Messiah. They were looking at him as the kid that grew up down the street. You see what they ask about him? They ask some questions, which is very telling. They said, where did this man get these things? In other words, we know he didn't go to seminary, is the way we'd say it today. We know he didn't go to school. He didn't go to learn all these things like a traditional rabbi. Where did this man get all of this information? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands. In other words, we're looking for any excuse we can find as to why Jesus is speaking and doing the things he's saying, except the fact that he is God in the flesh. That's what's happening with these people. Their unbelief is causing them to ignore the obvious. They were so comfortable with what they thought they knew about Jesus. He's the boy that grew up down the street. They'd learned so many things about Jesus over the years that they refused to see him for who he was 
But that's not all that happened. Not only did they ignore the obvious, but they focused on the irrelevant. You see, a lot of times, even when we're saved, but we're facing a struggle in life, we don't choose to believe that Jesus can handle the situation or the storm that we're going through. Instead, we focus on irrelevant things. That's what they did here in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 3. They're, they're continuing, they're ignoring the obvious, focusing on the irrelevant. Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And so they were offended at him. They focused on who he was, the human, not who he was, the Messiah. As we said earlier, Jesus had probably done a lot of work for these people. Some people think Jesus, the type of carpenter he had, was more of a stonemason. One scholar I was reading said that people think that maybe he and Joseph, his earthly uh, father who helped raise him with Mary, maybe they made farming instruments, plows and yokes and that sort of thing. And of course, this is a very agrarian economy. We don't know exactly what kind of work Jesus did. But he probably knew a lot of people just through that trade that he had been involved in through much of the first 30 years of his life. It was hard for them to believe that the former carpenter, the guy who'd fixed their plow, was God in the flesh. They referenced to him as the son of Mary. And we don't know exactly why they said that. Of course, most scholars believe that by the time Jesus enters his public ministry, Joseph has already been deceased and that Mary is widowed. And so maybe they referred to him as the son of Mary because Joseph is deceased because it was common practice in that day to refer to especially a boy by their father's name. And he would have been referred to as the son of Joseph in the community, his earthly father, but they refer to him as the son of Mary. Would you know another reason why people would refer to, to as the son of the mother? Well, maybe the child was born out of wedlock. And they're saying, oh, <laughs> you talking about the carpenter? Wait, oh, you're talking about that illegitimate kid who grew up over there in Mary and Joseph's house. How'd he learn all this stuff? That's what they're saying. That's what they're quite possibly saying about him. They, they bring up his siblings. They say, hey, aren't those his brothers? And hey, aren't his sisters here too? Well, you know why they're saying that? Let's ask the siblings who he is. Let's ask his siblings how he got all of this information. Well, what did his siblings think about him at this time? Well, just back a chapter in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his siblings had said he's out of his mind. His siblings didn't believe he was the Messiah. And in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says not even his brothers were believing in him. There's one person on the scene who believes who he is, 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that's Mary. They said, hey, let's focus on everything else and figure out how he knows this stuff. Instead of accepting the idea that he is who he says he is. And because they chose to focus on the irrelevant, they missed out on the blessing of salvation. I wonder how many times we miss out on a blessing when we're going through a trial in life or we're going, we're going through some situation and we miss out on the blessing of 
Jesus helping us through that time because we tend to focus on anything else in the world except the fact that he's the only one that can fix the problem. One last thing, and we'll see how all this ties back to us into this morning, but we see there, as we read the rest of the story, that because of their unbelief, it limited Jesus' supernatural willingness to do anything there. Not his ability. It's not that Jesus couldn't do miracles at Nazareth. It's that he chose not to. You see what happened there in verse 4. Jesus tells them it's the same thing he told them the last time he was there. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5, now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Now there's numerous examples throughout the New Testament where Jesus performed a miracle without the person first having expressed faith. So the fact that they had not expressed faith is not why Jesus didn't perform a miracle. Because if you look in Luke chapter 17, Jesus cleansed ten lepers. Only one of them expressed faith, but all ten of them received the physical healing. In John chapter 5, there's a, there's a crippled man at the pool of, of Bethesda, and he didn't even know who Jesus was, didn't even know Jesus' identification, and Jesus chose to provide the miracle of healing to him. So see, he didn't, he didn't express faith first either, so it had nothing to do with the fact these people didn't express faith. It had everything to do with the fact that they chose not to express faith. They wanted entertainment. But Jesus' miracles then, and the mir- I believe he's still in the miracle working business today, and the miracles he provides us today are not for our entertainment, but they're to draw us closer to him. You see, as Jesus had traveled about leading when he raised Jairus' daughter and when he healed the woman who touched his garment, and he did all those other things leading right up to this story, he didn't do those things to wow a crowd. He did those things to prove that he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior of the world. But these people had already chosen to reject him. Not just to say, oh, we'll see if we believe later. They out and out rejected Jesus Christ. And look at his his response in verse 6. It says, and he marveled. Because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. He marveled and he left town. He he couldn't believe that they refused to believe. Now I looked up this word to see where else the, the, the word, the Greek word that was originally here that's translated marveled here, to see where else it was used. It's used later in the same chapter. The same word, same Greek word, translated differently. It's translated as amazed. But look over in verse 51. Now let's talk about what's happening here. We're not going to read the whole thing. Jesus has fed the 5,000. He tells the disciples, get in the boat, go the other side, I'll catch up with you later. And uh, what happens? You know, Jesus walks on the water to them, right? Well, how would you feel if Jesus walked on the water to you? Well, in verse 51, it says, Then Jesus went up in the boat to them, to the disciples, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in their sails beyond measure. And they marveled. Same word used there. 
Jesus walks on the water to the disciples. He commands the winds and the seas to cease. And the disciples are amazed. Put yourself in that moment. You're a disciple. You're amazed at what you see the feeling. Absolutely amazed. That's the same feeling Jesus had when they rejected him. Jesus couldn't believe these people out and out rejected him. So he left town. If Nazareth didn't want his blessing, if they didn't want the salvation, well, he'd go somewhere else. And that's exactly what he did. He went around to the other villages in the area, the other, the other synagogues, and he taught there. So let's bring all this home. Let's tie all this together. Well, you say, okay, so the folks at Nazareth rejected him. The folks at Nazareth refused to believe. What's that had to do with me? You might say, hey, I'm saved. I, I've, I've accepted Jesus Christ with my Savior. You know, as, as Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, I've done that. I am saved. So what does any of this have to do with me? We've kind of got the opposite problem of the folks at Nazareth. Because we live in one of probably the easiest places in the world to confess Jesus as Savior. You go out on the street and take a survey of how many people will claim to be a Christian. And you will find a lot more people claim to be Christian than, number one, act like Christians. Or who even have graced the door of a church in years. You'll find all kinds of people who profess Christ with their mouth. They don't have anything to back it up. They're not living out the faith at all. We live in a place where it's very easy to confess Jesus. So many of us grew up in Sunday school, and we know so many stories about Jesus that we've heard, about how he walked on water, about how he raised Jairus' daughter, all these stories that we've heard about Jesus, how he, you know, his parents left him at church when he was 12 years old, right? They ran off and left him. Some of us relate to Jesus in that way. We know so much about Jesus, the person, that we forget that he's not just a character in a book. That he didn't just come to save us for eternity. That he came to help us through today. And he came to help us through tomorrow. And he came to help us through whatever life throws our way, if only we'll run to him. So many times we ignore the obvious, just like they did. The folks at Nazareth were so comfortable with what they knew about him that they ignored the obvious. We forget that we should stand continually amazed at who he is. But you know, the people at Nazareth also, they didn't want to admit that Jesus was what they needed. So they came up with every excuse in the book as to why he wasn't the solution to their problem. Oh, well, you know, he's just the carpenter. Oh, that's just James's brother. Oh, there's his sisters over there. Oh, he didn't even go to seminary. How could he have the solution to my problem? How many times have you or I tried to come up with a solution to our problems other than the only solution that promises to fix it? Sometimes we focus on the irrelevant. 
even if we're saved. Because the world and society has given us so many other areas to try to fix our life when there's only one way that can fix it. But then we saw that the unbelief of the people at Nazareth limited the supernatural work that Jesus, I think he really wanted to do in their midst. What if, even if we're saved, even if you've confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you say, you know what, Brother Jeremy, I'm saved, I'm going to be in heaven one day. I just don't realize why my life sometimes feels so terrible right now. I just don't know why things don't seem to work out the way, they, the way that I think they should, the way the Bible says that they should. We know, as Paul said, God causes all things to work together for good, and the verse doesn't stop there. The verse says to those who love God. And Jesus said in, in John uh, chapter 14, that means for those who obey God. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. So Paul said, all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What if our unwillingness to obey God is limiting the work that he can do in our life? You see, the way we live says what we believe about God. What if the way we're living is limiting the work he can do in our life? But the invitation this morning as we prepare for our invitation and the musicians take their place is is simple. The invitation really could be summed up in one word. Believe. Paul said there in Romans chapter 10 that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said it himself in in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. During vacation Bible school, Baxter came in. We had a wonderful conversation. When he left, he said, I wasn't as scary as he thought I'd be. Baxter confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that he believes in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Baxter professed Jesus Christ as the Savior. And we're going to have a public display of that here in just a minute. But this morning, if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, the people at Nazareth rejected him the first time and he still came back. And it's not too late for you either. Maybe this morning you say you are saved, but you know sometimes the disciples, Jesus had to look at them and they already followed him. He had to look at them and say, oh, you have little faith. Maybe this morning you just need to recommit to believe again. Whatever God's laid on your heart this morning, I hope you'll take care of it as we stand and we sing.